pastors and theologians talk about. Uh, but God wants us to know him as a trinity. And in particular, this evening, and probably for the next uh, three or four times that we meet together for Truth for Life, um, or Truth for Living, we're, we're going to be talking in particular about what each individual person of the Trinity, uh, what their role is in our salvation. Um, so we'll get to that when we get to the question, but let's begin by just reviewing the question we've already looked at. Again, question one, what does the word Trinity mean in relation to God? And really we think of it as three and one. The Trinity describes God as one. There is how many gods? One God. How many persons are there in that God? Three persons. And all three are fully God. And we talked about how this is beyond our comprehension. Jeremiah describes that there is none like you, O Lord. You're great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? This is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And God has always been a trinity. There's not a time where uh, the Son came into existence or the Spirit came into existence. God has always been a trinity. Uh, and we looked at that. That is the very nature of who God is, and God never changes. And we see that Jesus points to this in John 17, that, that he shared the Father's glory, the glory that the Father does not share with anyone, but yet the Son had that same glory, and he had it when, before when? The foundation of the world. So this is an eternal reality about who God is. Thirdly, why is it so important for us to believe that God is uh, three persons, each of whom are fully God? Why is the doctrine of the Trinity so important? Well, the answer is it's what the Bible says. Uh, God describes himself as a trinity in his word, so we must trust what the Bible says. The word of God is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. And then our fourth question from uh, the last time we met was, does the Bible teach that there is only one true God? And so we're taking and, and looking at this statement, God, there's one God in three persons, yes. The Bible teaches that the Lord God is the one and only true God. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Which now brings us to discussing the topic of the fact that there is three persons that are one God. Who are the three persons of the Trinity? And the answer is the three Eternal distinct persons of the Trinity are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as I was looking at what we were going to talk about regarding this, we've already sort of gone through and explained and provided scriptural evidence for both the singleness of God and the threefold persons of God. Um, so I thought, well, how can we apply this or look at this? And I think the verse that goes along with this is really helpful for us in understanding. Um, and it comes from the Great Commission. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, after he has already declared that all authority is given him in heaven and on earth. So just a quick note, when Jesus says that, that is a claim to deity. Right? He, is, he is claiming he has all authority, not just power, but authority, ability, and, um, uh, and permission. Those, both of those things are involved in this idea of authority. And if he has all of it, then that would mean that there's no one who has any more of it, which would mean then that Jesus is claiming that he is what? God. 
Because if there was something else out there that had more authority, then that would be God. But Jesus is saying, I have all of it. And as a result of that, as a result of the fact that, that the Son has all authority, he gives us a command. And this is a well-known command. We know this verse like the back of our hands. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I wanted to talk briefly about what the Great Commission is about, and then I want us to, for the next several times that we meet, we're going to continue on with learning the questions that the kids are learning, but we're going to be coming back to this subject of connecting the gospel with the persons of the Trinity. What, what good news or what redemptive work does the Father accomplish? What redemptive work does the Son accomplish? What redemptive work does the Spirit accomplish? And I think this is important because when we understand what the Great Commission calls us to do, again, notice what it says here. Go therefore and what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Disciples. This, this is important for us to keep in mind when we understand that evangelism is not just about getting people to be converted. I think sometimes we have this idea that that's all we need to do. Get them the gospel, get them to make a decision or get them to, to do a thing or do something else or whatever. And then once they've done that, we sort of let them figure it out the rest, of, the rest of what they're calling to do. But, but think about what Jesus is saying. He's calling on his, who's he saying this to? His what? His disciples. And so what, you know, he called his disciples and then did he just say, okay, go at it. Like, is that what Jesus did with his disciples? What did he do? He spent three years teaching them. He spent three years discipling them. He spent three years um, explaining who he was, explaining the, the realities of what it meant to be a member of the kingdom that he had come to bring. And so when we talk about redemption, we're talking about the fact that the Great Commission calls us to teach people, that they would grow in knowing who God is, which is why the Trinity is so important. What is the first step of discipleship in the Great Commission? Go, therefore, and make disciples, and then what's the next thing we're supposed to do? Go, ye therefore, make disciples, and what? Baptize them. Now, what are we baptizing them in? Do we baptize them just, we say, we're baptizing you into the church of Jesus Christ. Is that what we do? We baptize them, and Jesus gives us the, the direction for the first step of discipleship, baptizing them in the Trinity, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of of the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's really interesting to note that evangelism is not just simply calling people to be saved, it's calling them to a lifelong commitment to Christ. That is what evangelism truly is. And then helping them as they walk in that lifelong commitment to Christ. It's interesting Matthew's entire gospel is focused on this path of discipleship. Um, he, he, he calls people not just, his gospel is written not just to call people to Christ, but he's calling people to a kingdom, to a new identity. 
I mean, he begins in chapter 1 and 2 by showing that Jesus is the king by virtue of both his lineage and his birth. In chapter 3, we see Christ publicly identified, and this is important, by the Father and the Spirit. You have the Son, you have the Trinity there when Jesus is baptized, being publicly identified as king. And then we see it demonstrated in chapter 4, where he goes and he shows that he's king as a victor over the devil who comes and tempts him. And so we have this setup saying, here's the king, and then Jesus begins his ministry. And it's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes about his ministry and he says, not, and his first words are not believe, his first words are what? Repent for The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes to call us to radical transformation, to take ourselves from one kingdom and place ourselves into another. The kingdom is near because the king is here. If you're going to follow the king, your old way of life must be abandoned. You must repent. This is what discipleship is. It is a lifelong commitment to repentance, to turning from the the old world and turning to that which Christ has brought us into so that we would be a part of a kingdom under Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that was sort of free. Every time I come to Matthew 28, 19, I think it's important that we emphasize gospel work is not just simply evangelizing. It includes evangelizing, but it includes much more than that as well. It includes discipleship. It includes repentance. It includes a lifelong commitment to following Christ. Now, what we're going to look at this evening, because we're going to look at each individual over the next several weeks, each individual person of the Trinity and their role in salvation. So if we're starting at that look, who do you think we're going to look at first? The... The Father. We're going to look at the Father. And what we're going to look at today is the Father's role in redemption is that he eternally directs redemption. The Father is the one who plans out and, and, and brings about what is necessary for our salvation. So we're going to look at three things that the Father does. Three things particularly that the Father determined to bring about redemption. We're going to see that he determined the plan. We're going to see that he determined the people. And we're going to see that he determined the product of redemption. And I got my alliteration in there. You like those three Ps? So the plan, the people, and the product of redemption. The first thing we see is the Father determined the plan of redemption. Now, there's lots of passages we can go to that show this. But I think it's great if we start at one that's very, very familiar. Because I think, you know, we think about these things and we don't really, uh, we think of, of sort of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together as God producing redemption. And that's true. But they each have specific roles in that. And what do you think is the most well-known verse in the Bible? John three sixteen. all right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God 
did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, do you see the father's planning in this verse? All right, look at what happened. God, motivated by love for the world that he had created, what does he do? He's the one who gives who? The son. It is the father's initiative to send the son. In fact, we see that again in verse 17. God did not send his son into the world that he condemned the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John 3, 16 and 17, there's a clear indication here that the father is the one who is directing and, and calling upon the son to execute this plan of redemption. He gives and sends the son to provide salvation. So you see it there at one of the most well-known verses in Scripture. But it becomes even clearer in a number of other different passages in Scripture. And particularly, we see this when Peter preaches at Pentecost. So Peter gets up at Pentecost. He, he says, you know, there's, there's the, the um, coming of the Holy Spirit on the apostles. They come out on, on the porch there. And what do they start doing? Speaking in tongues which these tongues were known languages because people are there and they're like, everyone hears them talking in their dialect and, and they think, what in the world is going on? And Peter comes out and says, these men are not drunk, as you might suppose, but rather this Holy Spirit has come. This is fulfilling prophecy. And he goes in and talks about that this prophecy comes at this time because God has sent Christ. He sent him into the world. And what did the Jews do? What did the crowd there do? They crucified him. You crucified him. But this happened, Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And God who he's referring to there is the Father because we have Jesus already distinct here at, uh, pulled out. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, it's interesting the words that are used here. The two words used here, um, there are two words, the uh, definite plan, all right? There are two words in Greek. The first word, which means definite, it speaks of setting boundaries. That's the very basic idea of it. And it carries over the meaning of affixing roles or appointing something to do, someone or something to a particular task. So, you know, for instance, um, you know, I, if, if it's a nice day out and we're going to have chicken on the griddle, Rita's going to do all the side dishes inside, and she is going to appoint to me the task of cooking the chicken on the griddle. That's sort of the idea here. I have a particular role, but it's directed by the, the great foresight and plan of my wife. <laughs> and things go better when I listen to it and it, and it goes well from that perspective. Um, that's the idea here. The Father is directing the plan of salvation so that it is accomplished as he planned. And what's interesting here is that we see God bringing this about both through what Christ does and also through what the crowds are doing. Notice what he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but this happened according to God's definite plan. And so again, what we see here is the indication of the Father's um, direction through this. Secondly, this, that's, so that's the term definite. Then the term plan, it has the idea of taking counsel 
and it's often used to describe um, or to refer to internal deliberation. So thinking carefully about how you're going to do something. Um, It also has the idea of a resolution or a resolve to do something. And so Peter's message here at, at Pentecost is clear. The central act of redemption, the cross, was no mere happenstance. Jesus was not a victim of an um, exploitive society. He wasn't simply someone who was, was scrounged up by a Roman government that, that was persecuting those who wanted freedom. And that idea has been attached to the cross. Peter says, no, this happened because God planned it, because the Father planned it. He had a definite plan. He had, a, he had set boundaries so that Christ would fulfill a particular role that he had considered in his own mind. And then further, when was this plan hatched? When did God do this? And it happened according to his foreknowledge or his knowledge beforehand. This is not just merely knowing what is going to happen, but actually directing it to happen. That's the idea here between this foreknowledge. So definite plan and foreknowledge, all of those things are tied up in what the Father does in bringing about salvation. Jesus talks about this. Luke twenty two twenty two, For the Son of Man goes as it has been what? Determined. Well, who determined that? The Father. And again, he speaks of this, he, he speaks both of the actions of a man and the actions of the Father. From the beginning of time, from before the foundations of the world, God had intended to bring about salvation through the crucifixion of Christ, and Christ would be crucified because he would be betrayed by someone. God was the one who determined it that way. But The person that did that, is he still responsible for what he's done? Yes. Notice what Jesus says, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Later on in this passage, as Jesus describes and talks about who's going to be the greatest, or the disciples are quibbling over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And, And Jesus says, look, I'm going to assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom. Now, what is this kingdom? Is what is the kingdom of God? And that's a big topic we're not going to spend the, get the time to, to delve into. But ultimately, a kingdom is made up of citizens. And those citizens are the people whom Christ has redeemed. He has those whom the Father has redeemed assigned to him by the Father. And again, the word assign has its most basic meaning to make formal arrangements for something. In John 5, 36, Jesus says that the testimony that he has is greater than that of John for the works that who gave him to accomplish? Who gave Jesus these works to accomplish? The Father. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So again, it is the Father who is directing these things. John 17, 4, as he's facing the cross, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's praying to the Father here, and it is the Father who is directing Christ. And we even see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
What does Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He falls on his knees, he's sweating great drops of blood, and he prays what? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And, and while we see in there the amazing submission of the Son to the will of the Father in bringing about redemption, we also see very clearly the Father's role as the one who is directing what Christ is doing. In fact, the theologians talk about how this is an agreement that the Son entered into with the Father before the foundation of the world. We call this the covenant of redemption. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 22, we see this, that it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests and Christ's priestly role, which we're going to look at the next time we meet when we look at, at the Son's role in redemption, but Christ was made a priest. And he compares, he's like, formerly those who became priests were made such with an oath, but this one who he's talking specifically to about Melchizedek and Jesus, who are of the same priesthood, particularly speaking of Jesus, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest, what? Forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better what? Covenant. So there was an agreement entered into willingly by the Father and the Son. The Father directed, the Son chose to obey and to willingly give his life to save humanity. This is this great covenant that was made before the foundation of the world, directed by the Father, agreed to by the Son. I think it's also important to note that the Father's plan for redemption has always been to do this in and through Christ, through the Son. Um, one of the words that we hear sort of tossed around in evangelical circles today is the word called Christ-centered. Have you heard that term used before? We need to have Christ-centered lives. We want to go to churches that are Christ-centered. You'll see that on churches and, and things like that. Why is that so important? Because you have to realize that all the way back, before God made humanity, he knew that he was going to allow and permit the fall to happen. He knew he was going to do that. He also knew that this, that this wasn't going to surprise him, and he was going to have a plan to save humanity. Now, God could have, in his infinite wisdom, chosen any number of ways to save humanity, right? He could have said, all right, humanity is going to sin, and before the foundation of the world, before it even happens... I'm going to choose that they're going to save themselves through keeping a list of rules. Or he could say, you know, I've decided that they need to be baptized. Right? He could have chosen any number of things that would be necessary to bring about salvation. But the Father directed salvation, his plan, from the, before the foundations of the world was that salvation would be found, and the word that Paul uses is, in Christ. 
So when we talk about Christ-centeredness, we're not just talking about something that theologians have discovered. This is the very purpose of redemption from the Father's plan since before the sun began to shine. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then here's the kicker. Even as he, the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, when? When did this happen? Before the foundation of the world. And so the Father's plan has always been to unite us with the Son so that by virtue of that union, by faith, we would be in Him. This is, again, God is not like, when the fall happened, God wasn't like, "Uh uh-oh, what am I going to do? It didn't surprise Him. And as hard as it is for us to recognize this, it was His purpose from before the foundation of the world to allow this to happen so that He would save a people. And he would save those people by placing them in Christ Jesus. In fact, to some degree, there has been criticism made about modern Christ-centered theologians that they're not making enough of the Father. And so that we somehow neglect the Father because we focus so much on Christ. But that is actually the Father's intention. The Father is the one who glorifies the Son. The Father is the one who sends the Son. The Father is the one in whom, as Hebrews tells us, He's placed the fullness of Godhead bodily. This has always been the Father's plan. Peter talks about this. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, um, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, gold but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in who? God. It is the Father who chose or foreknew the Son before the foundation of the world. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1 later on, that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a what? Plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. So it has been the Father's plan John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave, he sent. It, was always been the, the God, it had always been the Father's plan. He's the one, according to his definite plan, brought about Christ coming and dying on the cross. It has always been since the foundation of the world, the Father's plan to place believers in Christ so that they would be redeemed. But it is not just simply the Father's plan or the Father's plan to to covenant with the Son and place us with Him in, but it's also the Father who directs the Spirit in His involvement in our salvation. John 3, 34, For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He, the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. And what's interesting here is that the point of what John is saying is, Christ's prophetic ministry happened because 
The Father sent the Spirit to Christ. And so the Father does the same for us. Notice what Jesus says in John 14, 6. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom who sends? The Father will send in my name. Now, this is one of those areas in which both the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Because later on, Jesus talks about how he will send the Spirit. But nonetheless, it is the Father according to his plan, sends the Spirit so that he would teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it was the role of the Father to plan redemption. He planned the entire thing, the entire act, Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, his um, penal substitutionary suffering for our sins. All of that was planned by the Father. But not only did the Father determine the plan of redemption, secondly, we see the Father determined the people of redemption. This is where we get to one of those very controversial doctrines, and that is the doctrine of election. Uh, the idea that God chooses those whom, God, whom he will save. Um, I think we have to be honest with what Scripture says. And Scripture is clear that there is a choice that the Father makes in saving his people. Again, back to Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he what? Chose us to be in Christ, in him. And when did he do this? Before the foundation of the world. Before you were a twinkle in the twinkle of the twinkle of your great-great-grandfather's and grandmother's eyes. God chose you before there was even a twinkle of any star in this universe. God chose to save people by uniting them in Christ. This was done before the world even began. We see this and probably one of the most famous passages that speak about this is Romans chapter 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So again, it's we're being conformed to the image of the son. So who is the one who's doing the choosing here, the predestining? It's the father. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. This is what we call the golden chain of salvation or redemption. Now, when we see that he foreknew, there are those who would say that that foreknowledge is of a choice, a free choice that a person makes in the future. So essentially this idea is who is it or what criteria did God use to choose people to, to salvation? And some people will say, well, he looked forward in his foreknowledge and saw those who would willingly accept Christ, and then those are the ones whom he chose. But it's interesting to note here that the foreknowledge itself is actually the act of election. He, it doesn't say that he foreknew their faith. It says he foreknew them. He foreknew individuals. And those whom he chose, he, which we're going to look at at the, second at the second point, he destines for something. The Father is the one who plans. 
He's also the one who chooses a people, and then he chooses that those people would have a particular product that we see in this golden chain. And we're going to come back to this as well. Peter talks about this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen or elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This happens, this election happens according to the foreknowledge of who? God the Ho, Father. Jesus talks about this. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them to them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Who was the one who determined which sheep, which people would be Christ's sheep? It was the Father who did this. And we even see this in Revelation chapter 13, that there are those who are written in the book of the life of of the Lamb. Um, This happened, this writing happened when? Before the foundation of the world. So the scripture is very clear that the Father determined the plan of redemption. The Father determined the people of redemption. And the final thing that we see is the Father determined what redemption would produce. He determined the product of redemption. He brings about the outcome. What what are we saved for? And this is something we don't talk enough about. Why did God save us? Did he just save us so that we would, would not have to go to hell? Did he just, just save us be, just simply because he loved us? Like, was it just to show, and, uh, show his love and his mercy to us? What, what does he want to bring about? What is the end goal of our salvation? And we already saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world for a purpose that we should be what? Holy and blameless. Before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as what? Sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, I could do a whole sermon on just this verse. There's so much here. But just think about what God intends to do when he saves you. He intends that you would be a person who is holy and blameless. He saves you not so that you can be free from sin's consequences. He saves you so that you would be free from sin itself. That you would be holy and without blame. He saves you. He predestines you so that you would be adopted as a son through Jesus Christ. That we would be the sons of God. And he will go on later on in Ephesians chapter 1 and bring out the point that this means that we have an inheritance. We're joint heirs with Christ. I mean, think about that. How many of you would love to be, um, well, uh, how many of you would love to be Elon Musk's kid? All right, that maybe isn't a good thing. How many of you would love to be Bill Gates' kid? You're, you're, and maybe not just Bill Gates' kid, but you just get to share in the inheritance that his kids are going to have. I mean, think about that. That'd be great. Billions upon billions of dollars that you'd have. We have something so much more valuable. And this is what God the Father intended to produce in saving us. Huh? Well, that's true. That's true. You're right. Money, money certainly is not everything. 
Yep. And we have much, we have a much better inheritance in Christ. You're absolutely right, Joyce. Again, this golden chain. God foreknew and predestined, he elected, so that we would be like Jesus, conformed to the image of his Son. He does this so that we would be called, justified, and ultimately glorified. As the scripture says, when we see him, we will be what? Like him. For we'll see him as he is. Peter, again, knowing that we have been, uh, we are, um, we are chosen as elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father so that we would have sanctification being progressively made holy by the Spirit, that we would be obedient to Christ and that we would be sprinkled with His blood. Right? This is what God is seeking to accomplish through our salvation. Peter goes on, we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people that God has chosen for his own possession so that we would what? Proclaim his excellencies. That we who were once not a people would now be a people. And Luke, Jesus himself says this. Look, instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to what? Give you the kingdom. Paul, elsewhere in Colossians chapter 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved, beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Colossians 1 here in particular shows us what should be our first response to what the Father has done in planning, in, in, in determining the plan, determining the people, and determining the product of salvation. What is the first thing we should do? Give thanks to him. He's the one who has qualified you in Christ to have this great inheritance. So, who are the three persons of the Trinity? The three eternal distinct persons of the Trinity are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today, we saw how the Father is the one who determines the plan of salvation, how it was all going to work out, covenanting with the Son, sending the Spirit. We see that the Father is the one who determined the people. He chose us before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve stepped foot on this earth, he knew your name. And thirdly, he is the father who brings about the entire product of redemption. That we would be holy and blameless, that we would be found in Christ, that we would one day look to be glorified, that we would be those who are children of God. So, go therefore. Teach people this truth. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we connect our salvation with the Father, 
It is those three things that the Father does that we think of. Hallelujah. What salvation we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it, Lord. And thank you that, dear Father, thank you that you planned, you purchased, and you produced us as your people. We don't deserve it. It's all to the praise of your glorious grace. So, Lord, may we rejoice and give thanks for what you, our Father, have done. And may we tell others of this hope that we have in what you have determined. Father, bless us this evening. May we take these truths and consider them and and think upon them. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.